You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. This episode of Gators Breakdown is brought to you by Manscaped. Get 20% off plus free shipping on your entire order. With promo code GATERS, head over to manscaped.com and purchase yours today. Gators Breakdown. Because there's never a dull moment in Gator Nation. The Gators Breakdown Podcast is ready to go. I'm your host, David Waters, and you can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SEC. And joining me is co-host Will Miles after taking a week off and uh, talked a lot of schedule and stuff, Will. So we'll, of course, get your thoughts on that uh, uh, of the, you know, the Gator schedule and how it lays out, man. But uh, welcome back and uh, plenty, plenty to discuss as football gets a little bit closer. Yeah, there were a bunch of people today posting that a year ago we were playing Miami. Yeah. And uh, so that sort of that got the juices flowing a little bit today as I was thinking back to where we were last year and obviously a very different time and sort of maybe apprehensive a little bit heading into that game starting year 2 of the Mullen era and then you come out of that year 11 and 2 and and champing at the bit at this point to get going in in 2020 and obviously it's a little bit of a weird year and things are different but hey there's going to be football coming up pretty soon. I got to be honest, 10 SEC games is pretty exciting, right? I mean, it's, it just <laughs> like the Eastern Washington games and those sorts of things. Like I watch every game and I, you know, I break down the film and I, I write about it and all that sort of stuff. But I don't actually want to write about Eastern Washington. I want to write about when they're playing Arkansas or Texas A&M or Georgia. So this is actually perfect for for. I really actually do hope this turns into the norm where we end up with 10 SEC games, add Florida State on the back end, and let's go. Absolutely, I'm. I've been. I've been screaming more SEC and conference games for a while now. So this is uh, pretty good. Pretty good, and uh, hopefully, hopefully the Gators, uh, you know, can benefit from it. But we'll get into all that and, and what it means for Florida after we've had a week, about a week to digest the schedule and kind of really uh, look into it. Remember, you can find Will on Twitter at Will Miles SEC and his site read and reaction dot com. Will, man, a big, big milestone this week. We're going to hit two million listens this week. Wow. I mean, you know, it's one of those things where when, when you start out the when you start at the podcast and obviously I wasn't with you at the start, but I've started my own site, you know, and you, you, you write the first article or you put the first podcast and like 30 people listen. And the only person <laughs> who puts a comment is your mom. And uh, to go from that to having two million people listening and, and just being a small part of that is really, really an honor and appreciate everybody out there who listens to us and and engages and buys stuff and supports us and retweets and all that sort of stuff. It's, it's humbling to be a part of that. And certainly, I mean, you're the one who's been driving all this and doing all the work behind the scenes. So congrats, buddy. It's, it's a, it's a big deal to take something from the ground up with no, you know, just, just as a startup basically. Right. And and getting it going as opposed to having a, a big, uh, you know, a big sports site behind it. Like some other people have, you haven't had that and you've had to build this from the ground up and uh, couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Thank you, man. Thank you. I'm so glad I could uh, get you on board about uh, probably some, well, halfway through, probably honestly. So uh, the back half, the you know, the, the second we, we hit, we hit, 
one million last not this past April, but the April before. So it took about two and a half years to get to a million and then just not quite a year and a half to get another million more. So, uh, well, so in six months we should be at three, right? That's, <laughs> yeah. that's the goal. That's the, <laughs> that's <it. laughs> have to raise the advertising rates at that point. There we go. There we go. So everybody out there who, who listens to Gators Breakdown, thank you very much uh, for, for supporting us along the way, of course. And I couldn't have done it without you. Well, I think I went and looked yesterday on YouTube, um, my first couple episodes got missed somewhere. Uh, I was working with somebody else, and they put up the first few episodes, and uh, I can't get a hold of them. But the the fourth episode of Gators Breakdown is on YouTube, and I think there's 160 views, maybe. <laughs> and, and so uh, that's, that's how much it's grown. So uh, a lot of that is probably people, and, and I have grown so much since then <laughs> in front of the microphone. So uh, it's been a it's been a it's been a, it's been a blast. Yeah, that's one of the that's one of the. I guess disturb. It's kind of fun and kind of disturbing to go back and listen to the first time you did this, and you know all the uhs and ands. Yeah. And, I mean, we still do that, and you still re-listen and sort of cringe. But, but for the first couple episodes, you're like, eh. and at the time you thought you were pretty good, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> and at yeah. this point, you're like, wow, that's bad. But yeah, I mean, the the interesting thing is, I think when you start anything, there are sort of seeds of what you're going to become, and you grow into that over time. I mean, the first time I came on, I think I was stumping for Luke Del Rio to be the starting quarterback. <laughs> so certainly, and, and then and then you brought me on for the season of, of McIlwain in 2017. So, you know, I mean, I'm surprised you didn't fire me after that, just thinking of me as bad luck. But, uh, you know, it's, it's been a blast, obviously, starting with starting with McIlwain and then, and then making our way through through the first couple of years of the Mullinaire and certainly hope we can do this for the – you know the distant future obviously yeah well if people have been following the the last couple of weeks um you know some uh, i threw up some new uh, gators breakdown merchandise so i've had to move the store over to uh, ebay uh there so there's a new design if you're watching on youtube you can uh, look at that there so new with the gators breakdown logo the state of florida to, there with it and of course the moniker of the podcast because there's never a dull moment in gator nation so you can go to ebay.com slash str slash Gators Breakdown. There's a lot more options there to choose from if you want to uh, support the, the, the podcast a bit more. Listeners are just enough, believe me. That, that, that's, uh, that's all you really have to do. But people ask me all the time how they can support, and uh, there you go. There's, there's one avenue uh, of supporting Gators Breakdown. The link is in the uh, YouTube description as well if you just want to uh, click on that and take you straight to the store. And we'll uh, next week. Uh, Clark Brooks from SEC StatCat is going to hop on with us. Uh, so next Tuesday night, uh, we've already got him lined up. So, you know, uh, Clark uh, runs SEC StatCat, and he'll, he'll help give us a really good in-depth look at Kyle Trask, Emory Jones, and the rest of the SEC quarterbacks and, and a, lot, a whole lot more. Clark does such a good job over at SEC StatCat with his metrics and passing charts and really knows the game and how those metrics work. In, in some real football context, you and I have used the stats a good bit and discussed them here on the podcast before. So uh, really excited to get him on. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun for a nerd like me where, you know, I, I found his site maybe nine months ago and all of a sudden the charting of the game was done for me. And so all I had to do was look at the film and kind of pick some plays that illustrated what the statistics were sort of pointing to rather than a couple of years ago. I remember having to chart every single one of Felipe Frank's throws and to not have to do that saved me an awful lot of time and, and hopefully made the analysis better because I didn't have to spend my time doing that. And, and Clark's doing that for us. And I encourage anybody who's curious about this sort of stuff to go over there. One of the stats I've really been pushing the last uh, last 
three or four months has been, you know, third down and 10 plus the difference between Kellen Mond and Kyle Trask and that Kyle Trask has been a lot more successful on those sorts of plays. And that comes directly from that website where you can sort of break things down on sides of the field and outside that numbers and inside, you know, throws down the middle and different distances for completions and all sorts of stuff. It's, it's a really cool place to go and take a look at, you know, if you've, if you've got curiosities about how one SEC quarterback compares or what did Joe Burrow do between, you know, 2018 and 2019 that really made him take the leap, you can see it there and it's, it's visual and it, it's a really cool site. Yeah. His Florida preview was released, I believe yesterday. Uh, so he has previews for all the SEC teams out there right now. And I'm telling you, it's uh if, Look, you probably listen to Gators Breakdown because you like some in-depth analysis and numbers. Well, that's kind of Gators Breakdown on steroids, <laughs> in a way, with, with that preview. So, uh, uh, good. We'll get him on next week, and uh, he can uh, shed some light on uh, his his thoughts on the on the SEC and the coming up season and uh, the ten games that we'll also get into here on this episode of Gators Breakdown. Before we get there, remember you can find Gators Breakdown on news4jacks.com slash Gators Breakdown. There you'll find all the Gators Breakdown episodes and News 4 Jacks coverage of the Gators and Jacksonville sports just in general. If you're a Jaguars fan out there, head to news4jacks.com. Please share, rate, and review the show. Subscribe on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform and follow Gators Breakdown on social media on Twitter and Facebook at Gators Breakdown. So Dan Mullen on this uh, Tuesday held um, a press conference. Uh, one of his pressers here talking, uh, of course, he, we met with the, the media, we met with him on Zoom, we get to ask him some questions. Um, still, you know, a little bit weird, but it makes it easier for me not having to, while I'm here in Jacksonville, uh, to, to be a part of the, uh, uh, of the, of the press conferences and, and ask some questions there. So, Will, first, the big headline the big headline, of course, and this kind of dates back to last week. Uh, and we, we, we knew this, but Dan Mullen got to talk about it today. Uh, the holdouts from last week, Trevon Grimes, Kadarius, Tony, Jacob Copeland, Zachary Carter, are all in the field now. Uh, so, you know, good to see those guys on the field. Um, scrimmage coming up Friday. Uh, we know for sure Trevon Grimes uh, will be able to take part. I don't know if the other guys have had enough practices to be able to take part in the scrimmage on Friday uh, yet or not. But uh, good news there. Um, like I said, we didn't have you on the podcast last week, so didn't necessarily get your thoughts on those guys um, holding out, you know, at least for a week. But good news that they're out there. Uh, the wide receiver uh, room, I don't think necessarily could have handled too much of those guys uh, <laughs> not being on the field. But here we go, second week of practice, scrimmage on Friday, and those guys would be out there. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously the fact that it was three guys at one position, um, you know, made everybody a little bit worried. And and then you combine that with the fact that, you know, nobody knows what's going to happen with this virus during the season. And it's possible that you get a couple of guys who get affected by it and have to quarantine. And if those guys happen to be wide receivers and you had these three guys sitting out, I think that's where you start to get concerned is that the depth becomes really, really important at this point because you don't, you know, it's it's not like a guy pulling a hamstring and you kind of know, okay, it's going to be, you know, four weeks or it's going to be six weeks or something like that. You know, you're just not going to know. If somebody tests positive the Wednesday before the game, all of a sudden they're out. You need reinforcements and you need guys who are going to be ready to play and ready to step in. And having, obviously, your top three wide receivers say, no thanks, <laughs> I mean, that, that would have been a problem. Um, we saw with Georgia last year with all the wide receivers who left and Jake Fromm really struggled. So a big deal to get those guys back. I think Carter's probably a little bit less of a big deal on the defensive line, but obviously he has a lot of experience, really started to come on at the end of last year. And so, I mean, I'm excited to have him back in the fold. At the same time, injuries happen. You lose people through the course of the year. Um, 
you know, and so one guy in one one specific position you can usually replace, but the three guys at wide receiver, you know, I think that's a big deal to have them back. Yeah, it looks like you know Carter probably probably will be playing a little bit more inside right now. Anyway, with uh, you know, kind of the emergence of you know, some camp notes of Brenton Cox really taking off and Jeremiah Moon at, at the buck position, you can that allows you to slide Carter in uh, inside more if you have to. Doesn't necessarily have to play edge. It's um, there with uh, Brenton Cox kind of leading the ways early on uh, there. So with that wide receiver news and those guys being out last week uh it was asked if some players that were on the field last week uh will had taken advantage of that situation and mullen singled out uh, transfer justin shorter uh, as a wide receiver that took advantage of the opportunity last week i've heard mixed reviews uh on, on shorter from a couple of different uh places and people talking to that maybe he's you know struggling coming off of coverage a little bit but i've also had in the same breath people messaging me that he's been looking really good so look that's what kind of happens this time of year especially when media can't can't be there at practice you're going to probably hear different things uh so most of the time this time of year you hear a lot more good than you hear bad that's just kind of the nature of the beast uh at, at this point so uh but yeah i mean you know we still don't even know if mullen you know has said today that he's not eligible um hasn't been cleared by the ncaa yet um, but you know, I, I think they expect him to be cleared if he isn't already. I don't know if, if he is, I don't know why they're keeping it behind closed doors though. But anyway, um, and, you know, it's, um, a transfer that got a lot of playing time last week out there with some of the true, uh, redshirt freshmen, uh, from last year, uh, the true freshmen from, you know, Henderson and Frazier's from, from this past class, but if for Mullen to kind of single him out, and some of the reports are true that he's been, you know, first week mostly shorts and and, and t-shirts, but out there uh, playing good, you know, it would be a good sign for Florida just to get some more depth at the wide right receiver position. Considering, as you said, uh, you know, if there's some injuries, if there's COVID-related health issues, that uh, Justin Shorter, who was a five-star transfer, transfers in and can uh, pretty much compete right away. Yeah, well, I mean, you mentioned training camp is is lying time, right? So that's when that's when we hear that all these guys are playing great. And I think when you look at the media members and sort of – there are different media members who are, tend to be more positive, different ones who tend to be more negative. It's sort of like you read the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and whichever things actually match, you say, okay, that's what's probably going on in the world. And I think it's the same thing when you're looking at this stuff. I would say that when Mullen specifically singles somebody out – He's doing so for a reason, whether it's to light a fire under somebody or whether it's to, um, you know, really praise someone who's gone a long way. I think in this case, it's probably the latter. And so it's a very good sign, obviously, to have somebody like Shorter, who has a very high level talent profile, but hasn't necessarily produced at Penn State yet. And so, you know, the transfer to Florida, you expect him to produce under Mullen. And, you know, the silver lining of having those three wide receivers out for a week is that you've gotten all these guys extra reps. Right, the guys like Xavier Henderson, Jaquavian Frazier's, um, you know, shorter. Those sorts of people are getting reps because Tony and Copeland and, and Grimes haven't been there, and you're going to need that, right? And not only will you need that this year, but you're going to need that next year because those guys need to get experience. And the, I guess, double-edged sword of having the three wide receivers come back is that your young guys aren't necessarily going to get the reps when the season starts because you're going to be all SEC right from the start. So. Um, getting them that week and seeing 
enough promise that Mullen thought it was worthwhile praising him, I think, is a is a pretty significant thing and, and bodes well for Florida um, if they have an injury, if they need a backup, or even if Shorter can win the job. Because that's the other thing is that mm-hmm. the, the guys sitting out for a week, they do risk losing their jobs. That's one of the things that comes with that. Um, you know, you, you hope that if it's COVID related, that, that that's not necessarily held against them. But I mean, we all know this is a merit based <laughs> merit based environment. And if Shorter comes in and just blows everybody away, he's going to start. And so there will be people who don't because of it. So if he had an opportunity and he took it and he, and he stepped up, that's great. But obviously with everything closed, it's it's um, – I'm waiting to see. The only time I can really remember things being accurate in camp is last year. Most media members indicated that the offensive line was struggling, and and that turned out to be <laughs> that turned out to be incredibly true last year. So we'll, we'll, oh, we'll get to that too in just a second. So, <laughs> so hopefully the the shorter news again. I think the fact that it's straight from Mullen means something. Right? He, yeah. he doesn't have to praise him, and he doesn't. He doesn't have to say the things that he said, and so the fact that he does, the fact that he did, I think indicates that there's at least uh, there's been significant progress made by Shorter over the last couple of weeks. And then um, this kind of dates back to over the weekend. Well, uh, SEC Network was showing a replay of the Orange Bowl, uh, Florida's win over Virginia, and uh, it got me thinking. I, I was just you know, peeking back and forth, and uh, I was doing some things out with my parents' pool and stuff, but. Uh, just kind of looking looking at the game, and, and uh, I asked him about uh, I asked Mullen about the pass catching from the running backs and that receiving their receiving ability from the running backs, and you know, even in a game where Lamichael Piran actually ran the ball well, he was still a threat out of the backfield in the passing game uh, at, at the same time. So uh, Mullen singled out Malik Davis here first, and look. It's go time for Davis. I mean, we we all go back and look at 2017 and what he was able to do as a freshman and Jim McElwain's last year. And he was one of the lone bright spots on the team before he got hurt. And then just really hasn't been the same since. And I remember um, uh, we, we, we want him to get back to a, to a form we thought he'd be before those injuries uh, crept in. And Mullen mentioned after last season he may not, you know, may not have been – where he needed to be mentally, not just physically coming off those injuries, but mentally as well. So I thought, as you said, kind of going back and looking at Shorter and Mullen singling him out, well, maybe the same thing is true for Malik Davis here. And you know, maybe if the run game struggles, hopefully I don't think we expect it to struggle like it did last year. But if it does, you ho- still hope there's a running back out there that can produce like all Michael P. Ryan did in the passing game to help, still help the offense. And I think for Mullen to single out Malik Davis here, it might be a pretty encouraging, encouraging sign. Yeah, I mean, it's critical that they find the guy who can catch the ball out of the backfield and that he can run a little bit. That that was sort of the the value proposition of LaMichael Pirine is that they were still going to give him the ball to run and that you didn't know as a defense mm-hmm. what they were going to do. In fact, I posted something on Twitter this afternoon and, and put it on my YouTube page as well, just sort of a breakdown of a play where Mullen started with – Kyle Pitts and P Ryan and or Kyle Pitts on the edge and then and then P Ryan in the backfield and then split them out wide after he saw the coverage that LSU was playing. And it made the read really easy for Trask because of the way LSU was forced to play it, because they want otherwise they were going to have a linebacker in one-on-one coverage and they didn't want that. And so they were forced into a coverage that made it an easy pitch and catch to P Ryan. And the only way that happens is if you is if you've got a guy who can successfully run the ball and catch the ball. And P. Ryan obviously was able to do that. So that's the thing I think for Davis is you you can't have a situational third down back 
and do that because then the defense knows, okay, bring in the nickelback when Davis is in the game and then when, say, Lingard or, or Pierce is in the game, bring in the linebacker. What you want is a guy who can do both. Now, obviously, I think P. Ryan is a little bit of a special circumstance in that he was just such a gifted receiver that that he enabled them to do that. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Like, And, and it'll be interesting to see whether Mullen is able to do some of the formation things that he was that he was able to do last year mm-hmm. in order to open things up. Because there are multiple times when you go back and look at the film where Trask had essentially a two-man read because of the way the play was set up, made it really easy to make sure he was going to throw it to the open man. And that's going to be a big key to this year is – figuring out a way to put the defense on its heels and sort of declaring what they're going to do from a coverage perspective before the snap. Mullen's Mullen's an expert at getting them to do that, and Trask has been able to exploit it thus far. So I expect him to be able to do it, but Malik Davis is going to be a big big part of that. Yeah, uh, Mullen made sure to mention Damian Pierce as well, but he really jumped off that that comment uh, with Malik Davis. So hopefully we get some semblance of a, of a 2017 um, Willie Davis here. So Mullen was asked about the nickel and star position as well, Will, and probably one of the first times I've ever heard Mullen go so in-depth about a position necessarily, maybe not quarterback or, per se, but uh, said they have multiple guys working there so they can match the best defensive player to the matchup and, and said if they have a premier receiver, they can move Marco there, and if they have a big blocker, they want a bigger body in there. So a lot of moving guys to different positions and is making sure they can match up uh, against different guys that they'll face. Uh, he said the reason they call the nickel back the star position is you have to be a star player to play it. Uh, you have to do, you have to do a lot more in that role. You have to, you're like a utility guy on defense. Uh, if they have someone that can do it all, they don't have to sub a bunch of guys. But you know, he says those guys are unicorns. So you have to try and find them, and there isn't many of them out there. We kind of saw that last year. Tradeen gets shifted there. It was not able to live up to what Chauncey Gardner-Johnson was able to do in, in, in 2018 uh, in his first season in, in doing that. So in, in a way, he kind of contradicts himself there in, in that message saying, hey, if it's, a, if it's a premier receiver, we want to put this guy there. If it's a bigger guy, we want to put a bigger guy on him. But also you want a guy who can do it all. So, of course, you know, I think he's laying it out. We'd love to have a guy. We'd love to have that unicorn that can go in there and, and play the position. We don't have to worry about it. The first one to me that pops out is Mari Bernie. I'm also hearing he's, he is the one repping there so far uh, in, in, in early fall camp. But he does seem the guy who has the size, who has the speed uh, from everything. Maybe he can bounce back from that injury. I think it's encouraging that he's getting the first looks there. Uh, I know Chester Kimbrough uh, is a young guy who's also getting his name thrown out there from you know, going back to what we thought we would see in the springtime. But, you know, I think he's a player that you would think needs to pack on some more pounds there to be that unicorn, to be that guy who needs to fit in there every play. And then uh, Travez Johnson, of course, the, the, the true freshman in there, I think he'll get a crack at, at a chance in play in there, especially when you – uh, or looking at that receiver and a guy who you know, is needs to be caught up with with speed, I think you'll, that's where you'll see Travis Johnson uh, there the most. But uh, early returns will, and I think hopefully, hopefully, Amari Bernie can become that unicorn. <laughs> well, I mean, Bernie is the guy who has the skill set to potentially be able to do it. But, I mean, so Mullen would know better than anybody what he needs out of the star position because that's exactly what I was talking about in terms of having Pitts and Pirine split out, mm-hmm. right, is that, if you have a guy like Pitts, who, who's kind of a unicorn on the offensive side of the ball, right? If you've got a guy like Pitts, you have to have a guy who can hold up in the blocking game on the defensive side, but then you also have to have somebody who can cover him. 
and that doesn't really exist. But you think of like a guy like Earl Thomas, who's a safety in the NFL. You think of, um, you know, one of the criticisms of uh, of David Reese at linebacker was his coverage skills, right? Mm-hmm. That he was a two down linebacker because you could have him in on first and second down, but third down, if he got matched up with a running back, it became problematic because he could get beat to the sidelines. And you know, that's sort of what Mullen's talking about about shifting guys in and out. That's why recruiting is really important, right? Is that that's where you get those unicorns, those five-star guys who are freak athletes are the guys who go out there and can do everything. And what Florida has decided to do, and they've been very transparent about this from the start, is they've tried to get guys who are versatile. Mm -hmm. So guys who don't necessarily do one thing perfectly, but guys who do three or four things well, and then they're going to rotate those guys in and out. Now, I think that it really helps when you've got a guy like C.J. Henderson on the outside. So if Kyrie Elam can be that guy or if Marco Wilson can be that guy on the outside or if both of them can be that guy on the outside, then it allows you to do a lot of things at that star position because you've got the outside locked down. The issue that they ran into a couple of years ago with Trey Dean is that that when Marco Wilson got hurt, they had to move Trey Dean outside, and all of a sudden you were sort of hurting – one position for another. And, you know, when Dean struggled last year in the star, again, you're sort of hurting one position for another. So, yeah, I mean, I think Bernie's probably the guy who's most likely to fit in that role. But obviously, because they don't have a guy, at least yet, who just jumps off the page, jumps off the screen athletically, um, you know, they're going to have to – it's like the linebacker, right? They're going to have a first down star, a second down star, and a third down star, and it's going to depend on down and distance, not just the down. You know, third and 12, you might not see Bernie out there. You might have somebody who's a little bit better in coverage. You know, third and two, you probably have Bernie out there because he's going to hold up better in the run game. So, um, you know, that'll sort of be what they're going to have to do. It's nothing new. I mean, it's what Florida's been doing the last couple of years. But that's why they've been targeting these guys who are versatile and who can do a bunch of different things. Um, You know, again, you mentioned Trey Dean. He was recruited as a safety, but he hasn't really played safety since he's been in Florida. Um, Part of him being out of position has been probably why he struggled so much, but that's been out of necessity for Florida because of who they needed out there. All right. And one of the last things I wanted to take away from Mullen here, he was asked to compare uh, this team, this 2020 team, to other Florida teams from his first two seasons, of course, uh, and Mississippi State teams, and thinks he has a good feel for this team. But it's hard to know when you're going against yourself, knowing whether it's a true strength or a weakness in another area. So uh, here we go, Will. He said last year they were able to run all over in camp. And as you said, you know, with media, we didn't really see that a whole lot. Maybe behind closed doors, this is when this was kind of happening. And he said he thought the run game would be a strength. It turned out to be more of a weakness stopping the run <laughs> as the season went on. Uh, you remember that mid-season stretch there where LSU and South Carolina ran all over Florida? Uh, there's what the those are the two games that really stand out. But you know, there's always certain aspects that turn out better or, or worse than anticipated. Will in, in 2018, you go back to Mullen's first season, you had players like. Felipe Franks becoming a pretty big threat in the run game as the season wore on. The offensive line becoming uh, pretty, a really, really good unit at the end of the season. And the defense that year bouncing back with two players many had given up on in Chauncey Gardner-Johnson and Ja'Kai Polite. Uh, they just burst onto the scene in 2018. Last season, you know, the inability to run the ball uh, was a big surprise from what happened in 2018 uh, to becoming a great passing team. And the offensive line took a huge dip. And on the other side of the ball, becoming an even more dominant uh, defense and creating pressure than the year before, but safety and nickel position take a step back. So, you know, a lot of things that you expect for a a team in, in the preseason 
when you get out there and hit the field, Will, and you got your first two or three games under your belt, it comes, becomes pretty apparent uh, what worked in the preseason camp and what didn't work in preseason camp. Yeah, I mean, so I wrote something at the, during the offseason last year that I thought the offensive line was going to get a lot better throughout the year and that it was a weakness, but that it probably wouldn't be a weakness by the end of the year, and that the quality of Florida's running game was going to be essentially tied to their starting point. And their starting point was really bad last year. <laughs> and, you know, the game against Miami, I don't think they ran the ball at all. You know, even even the next game where they played, what was it, like UT Martin or something like that, mm-hmm. they struggled to run the ball in that game too. And at that point, it's like, all right, this is, this is going to be an issue. And one of the things that I think they did, you know, Hevesy seemed to drive the guys out that that weren't doing the types of things that he was teaching them to do. So, you know, Chris Blake decided to transfer and and you know, they brought in a guy like Stuart Reese who obviously knows what he's getting into with with Hevesy since he's got a history with him at Mississippi State. And so I think that makes a difference. The other thing that I think is an encouraging sign at least for the offensive line is that when they had a month off between the last game of the year against Florida State and the bowl game against Virginia, Trask actually really struggled against Virginia. The reason Florida won that game and won it easily is because the running game was way way better. And that doesn't mean the offensive line was perfect, but the run game was a whole lot better. Mm-hmm. So now you have a whole another year of sort of film study and that's the other thing is a lot of this is cohesion and film study and understanding what to do. And then getting out there and translating that to the games, so the lack of practice may have an in, may have may make guys a little bit slow to start the year, but I figure three, four, five games in, all of a sudden the film study is really going to start to take hold. So guys like Ethan White, um, guys like Joshua Braun, um, those sorts of guys who are relatively new to the system, probably if they get the reps early on in the year, it's going to click a lot sooner because of the amount of time they've spent watching film, working on technique that doesn't necessarily require them to be right next to somebody else, all those sorts of things. So I anticipate the offensive line probably will improve more from game one to game nine this year than they would have in a normal year. Um, but again, it goes back to what's the baseline, right? If, if the baseline is you know, how they played against Florida State last year, then we're in trouble because the even though Florida was able to dominate that game, they didn't dominate it on the ground. If the, if the baseline is where they were in the Virginia game, I think we should be really encouraged because you expect then that they're going to be kind of – like where they were in the Virginia game is very similar to where they were at the start of 2018. And by the time they got to that game against Florida State and against Michigan in 2018, the offensive line was really, really effective. And if they can do that, then obviously um, Georgia's a little bit late in the year and hopefully we'll be able to be able to run it right down their throats. Absolutely, absolutely. That'll be the game we needed the most, uh, of course. We weren't able to do anything in the ground game last year. So, uh, yeah, hopefully by that time, the game that running game rolls around, offensive line, running game. Much better there. So uh, we'll get into the uh, main topic here on this show, uh, and that's the schedule as uh, Will jumps in as he wasn't able to last week and gives his thoughts on the schedule. But before we do, a message from our partners at Manscaped, and they're here to provide you the best tools for your grooming experience. You can never go wrong with the Lawnmower 3.0, the best hygiene tool for the modern man. Because of their ceramic blade and skin-safe technology, your snags will be reduced. Manscaped just released their Shears 2.0 nail kit, which is the perfect add on their Lawnmower 3.0 trimmer. The Perfect Package 3.0 comes with the new and improved Lawnmower waterproof cordless body trimmer, performance boxer briefs, and a travel bag for you to use when we're all done with quarantine. The Perfect Package 3.0 comes with the Crop Preserver and Crop Reviver. The Crop Preserver is Manscaped's anti-chafing ball deodorant, and the Crop Reviver is made with soothing aloe and 
witch hazel extracts that will give your man area a boost. So get 20% off your order plus free shipping with the code GATERS at manscaped.com. That's 20% off your order plus free shipping with the code GATERS at manscaped.com. So, well, as I said last week, uh, we got the schedule and we knew the who. We got the win and how it all lays out. And, of course, after we got that, there was going to be a, a lot of discussion of how it affected teams. And right now, the sports books out there, most of them had the Gators and they set an over-under at seven and a half. Out of 10 games, seven and a half. So that's about where I thought, I thought it should be. I thought seven and a half was pretty good. So, uh, you know, just uh, I was uh, dropping my daughter off at school and I was listening to uh, CBS Sports, uh, their college football podcast, and they have four participants on the podcast and they were split. Uh, and wouldn't you know it, Will, one of the ones picking the over for Florida was none other than Danny Cannell. So uh, former FSU quarterback who's given pretty a flack Pretty a pretty good bit of flag for Florida out there has the Gators uh, winning at least eight games. He's been high on Florida anyway since the end of last year uh, there. So um, you know, and, and looking at the schedule, will you know there, there are three for sure wins: Missouri, Arkansas, Vanderbilt. If you want to throw South Carolina in there as a for sure win, you absolutely can. Maybe in your own right, but you know they, they played Florida pretty tough last year. But Missouri, Arkansas, Vanderbilt. I think new coaches. Uh, Vanderbilt being pretty terrible right now under Derek Mason and everything they're going through with this preseason uh, camp. Uh, you know, to me, that's three for sure wins for Florida. So you need five more wins after that. Next phase to me, probable wins: Ole Miss, South Carolina. I think that's you know two more there. That gets you to five with five games left on the schedule. And I'm going to rank them in order of difficulty for me here. Will um, Kentucky um, or or Tennessee, Kentucky, Texas A&M. LSU, Georgia, uh, the five left opponents there. Uh, and, you know, Florida is thought to be better than three of those teams for sure. And I think you can certainly make the case for four of them, given that you know, all that LSU loss. So um, Florida might be a slight underdog in a typical home game scenario uh, for Texas A&M, but I'm not so sure now with the lack of crowds this season. Um, right now, it would be probably underdog versus Georgia, but that could certainly change by game time. And look, I wish it was that easy uh, to break down a schedule <laughs> and pick, okay, Florida's better than that team that should win. We know that's not how easy it is and how it's going to work out. But, you know, especially, Will, when you have a conference game or a conference schedule of 10 conference games in a row, I mean, that's, that's, it's difficult. It's going to be difficult. And now Florida's toughest part of the schedule for me are, 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 are the couple of back-to-back contests that, that they have. Texas, A&M, Texas A&M and LSU back-to-back and then to end the season, Kentucky and Tennessee back-to-back. And that's not easy, especially at the end of the season. Uh, Kentucky's just a tough physical team, and, and you know it's going to stink playing that tough physical team that late in the season. <laughs> so uh, especially with, with, you know Tennessee plays Vanderbilt the week before. So um, kind of breaking it down there, Will, and, and, and the way that the schedule breaks up and who Florida plays and maybe tiers of, uh, of opponents and how difficult some of them are. I think you know, there's five – for sure, probable wins there, and then five more. That's going to be, you know, that's really, really going to test Florida. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things we need to look at is that likely, it's really unlikely a team's going to go ten and zero. Yep. I think I think that's true for Georgia. I think that's true for Florida. So we almost need to reset our expectations and say, okay, in order to win the East, you're looking at eight and two, nine and one. So just going over that over probably puts you in a position to win the East. 
Um, assuming that one of your wins comes against Georgia, obviously, if you're, if you're going to go eight and two. Um, so, but yes, I, I think one of the things is, is that you, know, you can list Missouri, you can list Vanderbilt, you can list Arkansas as sure wins, but they're not a hundred percent as opposed to Eastern Washington and South Alabama. Those are basically a hundred percent. And the other thing is, is that oftentimes when you play those cupcake games, it's, you know, 38 to three at the end of the second quarter, the end of the third quarter, and you only play three quarters. And over the course of the year, when you have to go through the SEC, that does two things. One is you get guys who are inexperienced in the game to get some game experience. And then the other thing is, is that your starters don't get as banged up. And so that to me is the biggest thing to look for in the schedule is when you look at the game at Old Miss is that a 35 to 3 win where Florida can get Emory Jones a bunch of reps where Florida can get Malik Davis comfortable where Florida can get you know the Chris Bogles and the Mahmoud Diabates and those sorts of guys lots of run or is it a 28-25 game even if Florida wins is it a close game or maybe even like say 28 to 14 where they put a touchdown at the end where you know the only people who get to play are the starters, and then you go into the South Carolina game, and the only people who get to play are the starters. If that's a close play again or close game again, then you come into the game at Texas A&M. Somebody gets injured, and the guy who comes in isn't necessarily ready from a reps perspective, getting game time reps. So that's maybe the biggest difference to me between you know having the cupcakes on the schedule and then having everything be uh, be SEC. And then the other thing is is that at Tennessee is the one that I circle is the one that I think is the most likely to be difficult. It could be cold. Uh-huh. Tennessee tends to be better towards the end of the year. They will have probably settled on their quarterback. Jeremy or Pruitt t- seems to uh, go back and forth quite a bit about quarterbacks <laughs> early in the year and then settles on somebody towards the end. And part of that is they weren't playing anybody towards the end of the year. But let's be honest, they were losing to teams that weren't really anybody early in the year, too, with Garantano at quarterback. So If we say that, Will, right before the uh, Gator Orange Bowl I was watching over the weekend, the uh, Tennessee-Indiana Gator Bowl was on. And you're right, Garantano was playing well at the toward the end of the season. In that game, he gets pulled. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, it's so, it, you know, yeah, who knows what Tennessee's going to be. Well, and, and that's the thing, right, though, is that normally Florida gets them before they've even had an opportunity yeah. to find that. Normally it's the third game of the year. Tennessee's still trying to figure out who who's who and, and all that sort of stuff. And, and when you look back at Tennessee's struggles, it's not necessarily been a talent issue for the most part with the Vols. It's been a quarterback issue. So guys like Jonathan Crompton and, and Tyler Bray have been quarterbacks there. Quentin Dormady is, are, are the quarterbacks there. You just look at that and go, Eesh. we complain yeah, about the quarter. Yeah, their receiver core has been better than that. Well, and we yeah. complain about the quarterbacks who've come in at Florida after after Tebow, but, man, are they so much better than the guys who've been <laughs> at Tennessee. And the only time Tennessee got Florida was when they had somebody who was decent in Joshua Dobbs, right? He had one really good year at Tennessee, and it happened to be the year that they were able to get Florida. So if Tennessee can have solid quarterback play by the end of the year, so they've got this guy, I think his name's Harrison Bailey, mm-hmm. who's a four-star guy, top 100 recruit coming in too. Maybe, maybe by the end of the year, Bailey – you know, if Tennessee struggles early, maybe Bailey gets a shot, you know, fourth or fifth game of the year, and all of a sudden, and that's sort of what happened with Peyton Manning. God, what was it, 30 years ago at this point? But, but that's sort of what happened with Peyton Manning. 
you know, Todd Helton, I think, was the starter and, and, and then wound up playing for the Colorado Rockies in Major League Baseball. But Helton was the quarterback, got hurt, Manning comes in, and all of a sudden, you know, halfway through the year, and all of a sudden Tennessee takes off. That could happen with the Volunteers, and that's sort of the risk with playing them late in the year. But again, I, I think, you know, on the road, in a place where it might be cold, likely, if I'm Tennessee, I want that to be a night game. You might even have fans in the stands at that point. That's the other thing that we mm-hmm. don't really know. You know, the game at Texas A&M is early enough in the year that it's going to be 25% full at the most. Um, you know, by the time you get to December, we have no idea what might be going on. Maybe, you know, one, college football might have been shut down. But the other thing is, is they might be at empty stadiums, but it might be, hey, we can go full stadiums. You know, you just don't know what that situation will be. So that's the one I sort of circle and say beyond – Beyond Georgia and LSU, which are always the big ones, um, Tennessee's the one I circle. I think A&M is probably less of a worry to me than most people. I, I just really don't believe in Kellen Mond. I think Old Miss is a little bit more of a worry to me than most people. I think Lane Kiffin obviously is um, an interesting coach. But, you know, John Reese Plumley was the kind of quarterback last year who, who gives Grantham defenses fits. And and so, you know, maybe they don't win that game, but if it's a close game where Florida can't get backups reps, I think that does impact the way the rest of the year unfolds. Uh, and, Will, you threw in, um, you know, the end of the season for Florida and this is Florida-Tennessee. Uh, but, you know, one, you know, expectation here and maybe an outlook that can change, if you go and look at late season uh, and advantage other teams have, I think, over Florida, Look, at, go look at the last week of the season. And I, and I got the graphic up here. Right now, you know, Florida finishes up with Kentucky and Tennessee. Georgia has South Carolina and Vanderbilt. And if, say, you go on to play LSU or Alabama in the SEC championship game, well, you know what? They get built-in bye weeks with the week before the SEC championship game. Alabama has Arkansas. They'll be sitting their starters by the second quarter. So if you've got to play Alabama in the SEC championship game, you know what? They're getting some rest the week before the SEC championship game. LSU gets Ole Miss. It was a tough game for LSU last year. LSU's a better team. So that one's a little tougher than, than Alabama-Arkansas. But most people are picking Alabama to win the SEC championship or the, or the SEC West. And if you've got to play them, well, you know what? They get, they get two weeks to prepare for Florida because they're playing Arkansas the week before. And Florida's playing Tennessee. So it wouldn't be uh, you know, a two-week coasting period for Florida going into the SEC championship game. And Look, that's never really been the history for Florida anyway. You go play Florida State. When Florida was, you know, in Atlanta year after year after year after year, they were playing really good Florida State teams. So that's not to say, you know, it can't be done. I'm just saying that's big advantage Alabama in that scenario. So, you know, when all these teams are worn down, you know, because of so many conference games, look at the end of the season and who can survive just based on opponents. And I, you know, I think that lines up well for Georgia. I think it lines up well for Alabama. I think it lines up well for LSU as far as, you know, you look at the, the top SEC contenders. So Florida must take advantage early, Will. You know, Florida's schedule breaks up pretty well where there's not really tough three-game, four-game stretch. It's, the, like I said, the two-game pocket of, you know, uh, A&M and LSU. Then you have the two-game pocket at the end of the year with Kentucky and Tennessee. Florida's going to have to you – know, the first half of the schedule, Florida's really going to have to take advantage. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the schedule is a little bit overblown when it comes – I mean, everybody loves talking about it. It's something to talk about. It's certainly fun. But at the end of the day, if you're Kentucky, I think you have to worry about the schedule. If you're Arkansas, I think you definitely have to worry about the schedule. Florida is striving to be a team that is considered among the elite in the SEC, not just the SEC East, but in the SEC. 
And if you're going to be among the elite, then it shouldn't matter what the schedule is. You should be able to go out and beat people. And that doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't vagaries of the schedule that end up um, favoring one team over another. But hey, here's the reality is that I keep getting told that <laughs> that Mullen, and I think there's proof out there that Mullen is a superior in-game coach to a lot of the people who are who are out there, that he does a better job of developing talent. Well, you know, this is an opportunity to show it, right? Like, are you really an elite program in the SEC? Or are you a team that's gonna go seven and three, eight and two, and in a normal year go ten and two on a pretty regular basis? You know, basically, are you Michigan or are you Ohio State? That's that's really sort of what we're trying to answer in terms of where Florida sits in the hierarchy. And the reality is, is some years you're going to have to go through a gauntlet. Some years it's going to be a little bit lighter. This year was going to be one of those lighter years, but at the same time, I don't think Florida necessarily planned to have a you know a, a senior quarterback coming back who lit things up last year <laughs> when it, when he came in. So you never really plan for this sort of stuff. And and at the end of the day, I'm not sure there any there is any way to plan for a 10 game SEC schedule. I think the biggest thing is is that you probably have an opportunity for a slip up as long as the slip up isn't against Georgia. And you even saw that last year, right? I mean, Georgia had the ability to make a slip up against South Carolina as long as the slip up wasn't against Florida, right? I mean, if they'd have beaten South Carolina and lost to Florida, then, you know, Florida would have been a much different position. So um, that's the thing, right, is Georgia is still the most important game on the schedule. Nothing has really changed there. As long as they take care of business in the games where they need to take care of, they can slip up someplace else. So, you know, that game against Tennessee may not may not matter because yeah, <laughs> if, they, if, they, if they've taken care of business. The maybe, game that's, that's a good point, going back to my point. Well, maybe maybe Florida does get a bye week because maybe that game doesn't matter. <laughs> That'd be great. Just send all your backups up to Neyland and just <laughs> and be like the Florida flop 2020 version. Just just lay down and let them have it. No, I, look, I, I don't want to lay down against anybody. I no. certainly think that Florida against Tennessee is a big enough rivalry or at least was a big enough rivalry at one point along the way that fans would be upset if, if they did anything like that. But, well, you know, yeah. but motivation is natural, right? I mean, if, if you get to that point and you're 9-0, and you're already in the SEC championship game, and you know that the winner of the SEC championship is going to play in the playoff, then, yeah, you rest people. You get people, uh, you know, you get them out in the second or third quarter, and you go from there. Again, if you're 9-0 and coming into that game against Tennessee, I think uh, chances are you're pulling your guys at halftime anyway. So we'll, that's a good problem to have. We'll, we'll take yeah, that problem. We, <laughs> yeah, uh, but, uh, definitely, for sure. For sure it would be, be, be interesting in, in how that would play out. Uh, well, I want to go back to one of your points uh, as well. And, look, I absolutely agree. And maybe one area where we would necessarily, you know, we may, where this, where this may change the outlook on a team. And I don't know, I didn't have Florida going undefeated in the regular 12-game schedule either. Because one, uh, we'll go ahead and tell you, it's hard to go undefeated in the SEC. And, you know, Florida, you go back to 95, Florida, yes, had an undefeated regular season, losing the national championship game. 96, get beat by Florida State, you avenged that loss. But, you know, some of Florida's best teams didn't go undefeated. And if you want to just look at the, the SEC just in general, yes, LSU did it last season. That was an all-time great team, but still knocked down drag-out games with Florida and Auburn and Alabama. But it's tough to do. And Nick Saban, the best to ever do it, coaching at Alabama. Will, you have to go to 2009. That's his only undefeated national championship team. And every other, look, he's won a national championship without even winning the SEC. So that, I mean, there's another example of how hard it is to do. When you just put 10 SEC teams on the schedule, and Will, I know you said it in your article uh, that you released on uh, Read Reaction, 
But I, I, I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you. It's, I think it's more likely you see a two, three loss national champion than you do an undefeated or I mean, SEC champion. Just, just in that, uh, you know, a two, three loss SEC champion before you see an undefeated SEC champion with ten games. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> I think it just makes sense. I mean, you look at Mullen since 2009. He's 44 and 44 in conference. He's 47 and seven out of conference. So from the standpoint of where Dan Mullen has taken advantage of things, it has been out of conference both at Florida and at Mississippi State. Now, Florida is a little bit better in conference, but he's still 11-5, so he's only winning 69% of his games, 10-0 out of conference. Now, you go back and you look at Kirby Smart in his first two years, he was 12-5 and in conference, 9-2 and out of conference. Um, you know, Urban Meyer, 13 and four in conference his first couple years. Spurrier, 13 and one. That was pretty yeah. impressive when he started up. Yeah, and then you look at Muschamp, he was 10 and six. And then McElwain was uh, 13 and five. And Zook even was 12 and four. So, you know, this is really sort of the, the jumping off point for Mullen, right? I mean, you look at everybody, they were in that sort of 10, 11, 12 wins in the first couple of years. The only person who really announced his presence as an elite coach in the SEC at that point was Spurrier. So this is the inflection point, right? All of a sudden, Urban Meyer won, <laughs> went on a huge tear, wound up 38-13 and 13 in the conference after starting 13-4. and four. Spurrier wound up 87-14 and 14 in the SEC, which is unbelievable. Um, and obviously, sort of the bottom fell out for McIlwain and Muschamp those last couple of years. So this is – it is hard to win games in the SEC. Especially the, now. SEC is a different monster right yeah. now. Well, and, and these guys feast on the out-of-conference, right? Florida. The the expectation, three and one out of conference for Florida right now w- this year had the schedule remained the same would have been disappointing. Yeah, right? I mean the the Florida State game is seen not as a cupcake, but it's like I joked in my article, but it's seen as a um, it's seen as a win. I must win, right? I mean it's a game where the team is inferior and Florida needs to take advantage. So you're already at four and zero, oh, and then if you go four and four in conference, you're eight and four, and you're like, oh, it's a pretty decent year. Um, if you go, you know, five and three, eh, that's kind of what we had in 2018. And you go six and two, and now you're looking at what we had in 2019. And obviously, that next step is one more win. So, seven and one in conference would have been the next step this year. You add two more conference games without any of the sort of uh, quasi bye weeks in between. Yeah, I can see how a team loses two games, maybe three. Um, especially in the East. And, and if a team from the East goes seven and three, makes it to the SEC championship game, takes out Bama, they got to play for the playoff, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think the reality is, is that an SEC champion is going to get a shot no matter what. So win the East, winning the East requires beating Georgia. That's the long and short of it from the schedule release is beat the Bulldogs. And if you don't, you're going to be watching them in the SEC championship game again. As much as it changed, it stayed the same, it will. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it cha- I think it changed the overall probability that Florida's going to win, you know, 90% of their games. But, you know, 80% is probably going to be enough this year. Yeah. Yep. All right, well, uh, some uh, quick news uh, as we get through here. AP poll came out uh, just like the coaches poll. The Gators are eighth, but, you know, kind of weird that um, they would be sixth if you take out the teams that are not playing, <laughs> of course. Big 10, Pac-12 teams were still ranked in the initial poll now, when the games start, they will take those teams out. They, they've already said that. That's going to be announced. I don't even know why you throw them in there to begin with. It makes no sense. Uh, but, you know, I, I get it in a way, but to me, ultimately, this still really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Well, well they're practicing, Dave, so we can see how good they are because they're still practicing. <laughs> yeah. Good point. 
Good point. Uh, so the revamped schedule or, or revamped uh, top 25 for the AP. Uh, I'll go top 10 here. Clemson, Alabama, Georgia number three, Oklahoma four, LSU five, Florida six, Notre Dame seven, Auburn eight, Texas A&M nine, Texas number 10. So Alabama number two, Georgia number three, LSU five, Auburn eight, Texas A&M nine. So, you know, just based off of just the top 10, Will, uh, Florida would have to play number three, number five, and number nine. So three top 10 teams as we just said, on a 10-game schedule. Yeah, well, it looks remarkably like the recruiting rankings is, is what the, that, AP, <laughs> that AP poll looks like. But no, I mean, the only one I take umbrage with is LSU. They've lost so much. Yep. And nobody knows what Miles Brennan's going to be. And then you've got Joe Brady leaving too. And I, they even had some first-place votes, and that's just people voting in first place because they won the title last year. That's, yeah. that's a legacy and first-place votes. They've had some recent opt-outs too for – you know, the, the the season. Well, I mean, and Jamar Chase is a really good player, but so is Jordan Jefferson. He's not there anymore. And it, that offense can't possibly be as good as it was last year. And the defense wasn't all that great. So you look at – if it was a lights-out defense and you said, okay, they're going to take a step back on offense, but they should still be able to maintain what they were doing on defense, okay, maybe I'd buy that. But they didn't have a fantastic defense. The offense bailed them out, especially early in the year and especially in that game against Florida – and they're not going to have that ability most likely this year. So I, I think LSU is one of those teams where seven and three, six and four is a distinct possibility because it's going to look more like a less miles team than it's going to look like that team from last year. Um, I think last year's an aberration. I think there's a lot of evidence that suggests that. Um, I've looked at that a little bit in the past and, you know, based on their recruiting profiles and how Orgeron is coached and those sorts of things, I think. I think he's going to have some outstanding teams every once in a while, especially when he hits with a quarterback. Yeah. And then they're going to be teams that are sort of kind of where they've been the previous three or four years under Orgeron. Very, very good, but not but not elite. And I think that's sort of where they're going to be this year. So sixth, I think, is or fifth, I think, is a little bit high for them. Um, but, again, you, you don't have that many teams to actually rank. I mean, how many teams are there in the Power Five with three of the Power Five leagues out? What is it, three times 14? So you're looking at 42 teams. So top 25 is going to be, you know, and you look 80% at the, of the teams. Yeah, and you look at the other top 10 teams, uh, you know, with that, and would you put LSU behind Notre Dame? Would you put them behind yes. Auburn? Would you put them behind A&M? Would you, put, would you put them behind Texas? So, I mean, you look at that, you may be – you know, you may put them behind a couple of those teams, but you're not putting them behind all of those teams. So I kind of agree with you. Five's probably too high. I'd probably have them eighth, ninth uh, around that area. Because, look, you do not lose that much and rebound and have that type of season again. Florida, 06 to 07. You know, it, it, it just, that's one, you know, just a close example for, for Gator fans. That's basically what it was. Florida lost a ton off that team. Well, their quarterback won the Heisman years. Trophy. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, so you think and about the what guy they who lost. changed, like you said, Brady cannot be overstated. That's the, he changed the program. I mean, I, I want to go back to that. So Florida went 9-4 and four in 2007 after winning the championship in 2006 because of all the guys that they lost on defense. And they couldn't their defense was so bad that they went nine and four, even though their offense couldn't be stopped and the quarterback won the Heisman trophy. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, like, so that is like the top in scenario for LSU would be going nine and four where, you know, everything hits right. You've got miles Brennan comes in, looks just like Joe Burrow. 
And still, they lost half their defense to the NFL. So, I, I, again, I, I think, you know, you asked Oklahoma, Notre Dame, Texas. Um, I can't remember who the fourth team was that you Texas listed. A&M. I'd put them below all of them. Yeah. I, I think at the it, and it's nothing to be ashamed of. I mean, you just yeah. won a national championship, and seventeen year twenty two yeah. guys I, with the NFL. I'd trade places with them in a heartbeat. <laughs> Heck yeah, man! Flags fly forever. Give me one of those, and I'll, I'll, we've lived through four and seven without a national championship. I'm happy to take one of those if we win. <laughs> if we win a chip. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, last bit of news, Will. Uh, this one, and we can get a little bit of conversation before we wrap up this episode. Big news here, big news. Extra year of eligibility this year. This year will not count against uh, anybody uh, playing you know, football this year. And Mullen said it's the right move. Great idea by the NCAA to do that. Helps make decisions a lot easier in terms of, guy, of what guys want to do and what they're going to do. Uh, there are uncertainties. Uh, so it was nice you know, creating some certainty on that, Mullen says. There are other things that, that could create certainty on, on as well. Have to see what the SEC will do with number of guys of who can dress and who can play. And wants to see if the SEC loosens their restrictions. Thinks that would be good to be more in line with what you know, NCAA overall rules on that, not necessarily just the SEC rules. So, um, you know, some, some good thoughts there from Mullen. And you know, we just discussed, you know, if your backups can get playing time. Well, you know, if, if the uh, SEC doesn't allow for more players to, to, to travel and all that kind of stuff, then – you know, yeah, that may not be too much of a, a factor anyway. But, well, one thing I want to look at for, from the Gator side of thing is, you know, which players could benefit the best? You're going to be looking at true freshmen here uh, who now the, the four-game rule, it doesn't apply. It, look, it doesn't apply for anybody, but you're going to go straight for freshmen, and, and, and now you get a free year of freshmen. You basically get a uh, an extra year out of them more so than anybody. You know, you're, you're young players on the roster, but more so your freshmen. But of course, Anthony Richardson comes to mind. You know, every you know every third and two, every third and one. Are you putting him out there just to go bowl over for two yards and get a first down uh, with, with with his big body frame and it looked like Tim Tebow in 2006? Uh, Xavier Henderson, do you just put him on kick return? Let him be your kick returner. You know, if he's not gonna, he may be good enough to crack the rotation and and be a starting wide receiver anyway. And if he is, maybe you don't do that. But if he's a second team wide receiver or third team wide receiver, especially early on in the season. Does he become your, your, your main kick returner or, or scenarios like that? So uh, I can see, you know, players like that, Richardson, Henderson, getting a lot of special teams play uh, with, with skill, skill players, uh, you know, now playing more than four games, you don't really have to worry about the burn, burning a red shirt or anything like that. You get a free year to go do whatever you want to with these guys. Yeah, I'm not sure anyone really realizes what a big deal this is for Florida. So – and I'm going to be writing about it later this week because I want to actually put it down on on paper with some numbers. But we talk about recruiting all the time, and we talk about probabilities, right? And the the five star guys end up being NFL players fifty, sixty, seventy percent of the time. The four star guys, especially the low four star guys, are around twenty percent. So when you think about the number of starters that you get from one recruiting class. What ends up happening is, is if you only recruited four star guys, you really don't have enough NFL guys in your starting lineup. But now you've just added a fifth recruiting class, essentially to a four-year program, right? I mean, and I think, you know, people always talk about closing the gap with Georgia. I think this is a real opportunity for Florida to close that talent gap with Georgia because basically it's a whole new recruiting class to sort of hit on some of those four-star guys that you bring in. And if Mullen develops these guys better than anybody else – and has sort of an extra 
recruiting year. I mean, an extra set of five stars for Kirby ain't going to make a difference. They can't get on the field. But, but, mm-hmm. for, but for Florida, I think it really makes a difference. I think this is something that we're going to look back two or three years from now and say this helps stock the cupboard at Florida to a point where it closed the talent gap with Georgia and really made that a rivalry. I, I think this is a huge deal for Florida, not just for 2020. I think it's a deal. I think it's a huge deal because there are going to be guys who transfer, but the guys who transfer are going to be the guys who lost out their jobs to the guys who hit. And I just think there's going to be a much like the hit rate's going to be the same. There's just a larger pool because you've yeah. added this extra year. I think that's a huge deal. And obviously getting the guys the experience this year without wasting redshirt ears and that sort of stuff is also going to be a, a major deal from the standpoint of seeing what guys can do in big time games, getting them experience, all those sorts of things. But that applies even that, that applies equally to everyone, right? right. That George is going to get to do the same thing, right? They're going to be able to bring in guys who are, and, and, AM and LSU and all those programs are going to get to do the exact same thing with their freshmen that Florida gets to do. And with that, no- Will, yeah, and, and with that, your three-year guys are going to be three-year guys anyway. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. But again, again the, the three-year guys are what you want. I mean, you yeah. want those guys in your program. Yeah. And 20% of your four stars who come in tend to be in that three-guy range, right? C.J. Henderson was a four-star guy, first-round draft pick, three years at Florida. But there's a large segment of Florida players, Florida recruits, who are back for a fourth year because they aren't one of those three-year players. Um, Kirby Smart just sent a lot of people off to the league this past year, especially you know both offensive tackles, which is one of the reasons why we think Florida probably has a shot. Um, it gives you a opportunity to find those guys. It gives you a higher probability. I think that's the biggest deal in in the eligibility is it's going to shrink the talent gap between the teams that are sitting at that one, two, three, four range and the teams that are sitting at that seven, eight, nine, ten range. And if Mullen can hit on a quarterback, I, I think you're going to be looking at a team that has almost equivalent talent to L- to to LSU and Georgia, but is going to have a quarterback guru behind them. I, I think this is a real opportunity for Mullen to to it, it it'll help paper over some of the deficiencies we've been talking about just because of the general numbers. Yeah, that was you know going back to my scenario with like Richardson and stuff. My thing is, you know, because he, he plays the quarterback position, and I, the way Mullen has coddled that position of not forcing guys out there, and like I think Richardson was probably on his way to a redshirt year, just so Mullen can save that year. Now you don't have to worry about that. Uh, but for for other players, like if if Xavier Henderson was going to be special in kick return game or, or something like that, or or special as a wide receiver. Well, you know, then more than likely, as I said, he's going to be a three-year player and then go into the NFL anyway. Uh, but, you know, if something, you know, injury down the road happens or something like that, then, you know, you don't necessarily uh, get penalized uh, for a year or anything like that. Yeah, I know medical registers and all that stuff uh, happen, but, you know, this opens up another avenue of, of having and keeping players along, uh, keeping on on the roster longer if, if need be. Yeah, I mean, it's – this is a big deal. And it's a big deal, both. Yeah, I like the, the way you say it. Like I, I didn't, th- I didn't think about it from that aspect. It, it does, it, it does throw a, a bigger talent pool to pull from in, in the hit rate. Yeah, and I mean, you know, one of the things about the redshirt is usually you throw in a guy against Middle Tennessee State, 
and let him get his feet wet. I, I think coaches are going to be hesitant to do that in games where they don't necessarily run away with it. That's why it's important to run away with the games against Vanderbilt and Arkansas and Ole Miss and and Missouri because you need, if you want to get those guys reps, you're going to do it there. Um, I don't suspect we're going to see Anthony Richardson in the fourth quarter against Georgia. If we do, I think we're celebrating, and and I'm I'm going to be so drunk I won't remember it. So, <laughs> so you know, I mean that that's the thing is I I think because we've got the ten game conference schedules, I don't suspect guys who aren't ready are going to get more than four games anyway. I yeah. think the place where this makes a difference is somebody like Kyle Trask, who has the opportunity to come back, and that's an area where maybe it makes things a little bit constricted right? because then you've got Trask, Emory Jones, Richardson, Del Rio, and that quarterback room's getting awfully crowded. And then you got to manage the transfers. And, you know, Mullen, Mullen has been really managing the transfer portal in a way that other coaches haven't necessarily been doing. And it'll be fascinating to see what he does with the transfer portal, both with guys leaving and guys coming in because, you know, the issue with doing it this way is you've essentially given the teams an extra set of scholarships, and it's going to be hard to take those away, mm-hmm. right? I mean, at some point you're just going to have to say, "No, you got to cut twenty guys loose." I don't think they're going to be able to do that. So yeah. I'm not sure how you get back to the 85. Yeah. Now that you've given them the ability to to extend this, so it's going to be it's going to be fascinating to see what happens. Um, you know, some of the lower division teams may not be around anymore after after yeah. all this stuff, considering all the all the cancellations and things like that. The, the landscape of college football is going to change, not just from a recruiting standpoint, not just from a uh, monetary standpoint, but I, I highly suspect there's going to be some conference realignment that comes out of this as well. And you know, teams like Ohio State and Penn State and Nebraska who are not excited about their conference's decision are going to probably reach out and we're going to see some seismic change over the next year or so. Yeah. I mean, I don't think, uh, I don't think Kyle Trask would come back, but man, I don't know if I can handle another year of quarterback debate you know, <laughs> on, on, on the Twitter sphere, but uh, I don't think he gains much from coming back unless he, I mean, there you go. But if he comes out with an injury or, or something like that, then you can absolutely could see it. You know, that that's where this can come into play. If you get, if you got a superstar, I mean, I mean, either way, probably Kyle Pitt, somebody like that, you know, you, know, you can see why they're also thinking about maybe opting out or something like that. And I ain't saying Pitts is, but you see the big-time players and why they're thinking about it. Uh, but, you know, a player like Trask who's on the borderline, you, I've seen him in some first-round mocks, anywhere from first, second, third-round pick. But, you know, if he's projected and he gets feedback as a third-rounder and he just and he's coming off of an injury – uh, early on in the season, I mean, he gets he gets a year to come back, and you know that as you said, well, that could really that could really throw the quarterback room for a tailspin when you've tried to plan it this way for a couple of years and who you redshirt and who you give playing time and and all that. It really could throw it for a tailspin if if a scenario like that happens. So good on the NCAA for something does like that does happen in a year like this that gives an opportunity for a player to come back. But as you said, man, roster management. And roster balance for the next few years is going to be is going to be fun to watch uh, in an aspect of, of college football we have yet to see. Yeah, I mean, there's unintended consequences with everything, and I think the NCAA is doing the right thing, yep. allowing these players to come back, allowing them not to burn a year of eligibility, all those all those sorts of things that they're doing. Um, 
But those unintended consequences, I think, are going to fall in favor of Florida. At least one of them is going to fall in favor of Florida. So I'm excited to see it. I'm sure people will come back at me and say, see, recruiting doesn't matter when Florida starts winning. (laughs) (laughs) And it'll give me something else to write about. So that'll be good. But no, I I think this is a huge deal. I think it's a huge deal for the players, but I also think it's a huge deal for Florida. I think it, it moves Florida closer to Georgia in a way that I'm not sure people intended with the way the rule was passed, but you know, if, if you can, if you can get the talent levels equivalent, Mullen wins a lot. And so um, I'm excited to see what happens when, when that happens and, and hopefully sets Florida up to be successful for the next decade under Mullen because of the, you know, you obviously didn't want a worldwide pandemic to do it, but you know, Hey, now that you've got these cards dealt to you, let, let's, let's use it to our advantage and use it to beat Georgia. Uh, well, um, you kind of teased what you got coming up on Read and Reaction and you know, this topic we just discussed. You, you're going to release something soon uh, with that. But also let our listeners know about the YouTube channel you just put out there. Yeah, so if you go to YouTube and search Read and Reaction, you can find some uh, you can find some things I'm starting to post there. So please subscribe. And, and about once a week, I'm going to be putting up some, um, some uh, basically film breakdowns, 30 seconds to a minute long. I'm using some uh, some software from a place called Coach Paint. They're really cool. They they they're letting me use their software, and and it it helps sort of diagram the plays and 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 what's going on. So right now there's a play on there that looks at Mullen diagramming or basically using motion to make the play easy for Trask. And that's something that you see over and over and over again is that the personnel and the motion that Mullen uses helps open up the place as quarterback knows where to go with the throw. Um, and two years ago, you saw it in the running game where he used a lot of Felipe Frank's versatility to open things up. Last year, he didn't have that with Trask, and so he used Kyle Pitts to open that up. So I'm hopeful that what's going to happen is, is that we're going to start seeing those things blend. Right? You mentioned having Anthony Richardson in there or even Emory Jones in there. Once you've got a running quarterback and offensive line that's a lot stronger and still have Kyle Pitts out on the field, I think he's going to start to be able to combine these things, and that's really when you're going to see the offense take off. So, um, yeah, if you go to YouTube, type in Read and Reaction, you can take a look at the first one. I'm probably going to be posting something there you know, every, every week or so. Um, I'm going to be posting some things privately through Patreon for some people too, so if you want to go over there and check out my Patreon page and uh, sign up there, you'll get some stuff that you can't get anywhere else. So thank, thanks for all the support, but uh, you know, go check it out. I think it's kind of cool. Yeah, absolutely. I checked it out there, and Will does a really, really good job of uh, pinpointing uh, important aspects uh, of a play there. So follow Will on Twitter at WillMilesSEC and his site, readandreaction.com. I'm the host of Gators Breakdown, David Waters. You can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SEC. Guys and girls out there, thanks for listening to this episode of Gators Breakdown.